Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. How are you all doing? You good? Good, you're good? Good. I actually, I asked Mark if we could start tonight. I wanted to run up here with the song, Let's Talk About Sex, Baby. And he said, Gabe, this is church. Keep it PG-13. So, you know, he's a little bit uh, a little bit conservative, Mark, but that's okay. But my name is Gabe Phillips. I'm married to the beautiful Fiona. We've got a little baby girl called Olivia Grace. And welcome to Sex on Sundays. We named it Sex on Sundays uh, partly just so that it would be an awkward conversation for you when people say, are you coming to Sex on Sundays? This will be awkward. But uh, partly because we really believe, as Mark says, we want to reclaim and redeem the conversation about sex. We, we believe that what you think about sex and relationships has a massive effect on what you think about God. And actually vice versa. How you see God, I believe, will determine how you see sex and relationships. So for us this evening, as we said, going on this journey and we're going to go for the next few weeks, it's going to be exciting, it's going to be passionate, it's going to be explosive. I, I'm just so excited for the series as well. But we want to show you God. We want to show you God because actually this ultimately was his idea. Sex, for God and sex, he's the Steve Jobs of sex. He invented it. It's his thing to tell us how to run it. So we're very excited about that. And actually, we want to, in the next few weeks, we're going to get really practical. And we want to answer and give our position on, on the hot topic issues. And when I say position, I don't mean sexual position. So keep your minds off the, at the gutter, everyone. Please, this is church. But actually, what we're trying to do here is that we are really praying for three things. So this is a series where we will see freedom from brokenness. We secondly believe that actually we are in this area want people to walk into a bigger future than before. And thirdly, we really believe that as we engage with this topic properly, that we'll walk into fulfillment in, in, in God and His design for our life like never before. So three things. If you come each week and you engage with us and lean in with faith, I can promise you freedom. I can promise you a bigger future, and I can promise you fulfillment in God like you've never known it if you come with faith to these meetings. But it's really good to have you here. So before we say anything else to talk about sex, we need to pray first. So let's do that. Jesus, help us. Amen. Cool. Really good to be together. That's a simple prayer, but we need to pray it. I'd encourage you, if you go home tonight for the time's sake, we're not going to read the scripture, but Genesis chapter 2, I'd love you to go home, read that whole chapter because actually we believe that from page one of the Bible, the story of God and his, and, his, and his relationship with mankind explodes to life. The Bible doesn't open up with a book of morals or legalistic principles or, or a ten-step guide to happiness. This is the Bible opens chapter one with the macro version of creation. God speaking and a creation obeying. Let there be light and there was light. It's the macro version, the, the highlights package, your Supersport Blitz account of creation. Day one to day six, in rapid fire, God creating and the, and the world obeying. Day two zooms in like your Google uh, image, Google Maps. It zooms in a little bit closer as we lean into God's creation, not just of the, 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 the sky, the, the heavens and the earth and everything in between, but actually his engagement with the prize of his creation, mankind. And we find out that God did something a little bit different with man. Everything else, he spoke and creation appeared. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be mountains, and there were mountains. Let there be sea, and there was sea. Let there be stars in the great expanse, and there were stars. They obeyed his voice. But when it comes to mankind, we find in Genesis chapter 2, it says that God leant down into the dust of the earth, and he fashioned mankind, the prototype male, Adam, out of the dust of the earth. 
He, that's how he made. I love preaching with Jay around. This is so encouraging. So encouraging. But it's an incredible image. It is an incredible imagery of, of God fashioning mankind up close and personal, not from a distance, not from afar, not an angry headmaster, not a, a God in the sky with a firebolts, uh, thunderbolts and lightning, very, very th- frightening. No, no, it's not a God who's with a measuring tape saying, this is the standard. No, but a God engaging with the dust of the earth and fashioning man and breathing his intimate life into mankind. That's how the story of the Bible begins. And actually, if we keep reading, we find out that God, throughout the creation order, created order, he starts to saying, day one, he looks at it and says, it was good. Day two, it was good. Day three, it was good. Day four, it was good. Day five was good. Day six came, God creates man, and he says, it is very good. There's something different about you and I. We're not just flesh and blood and just something, uh, one of the animals. No, we are, we are made in his image. And he says, we're very good. But as you keep reading in chapter 2, we stumble upon the first thing that God says that's not good. And lo and behold, it's not the mosquito. I would have said that's not good. Still trying to work out that one. But God says the first thing that's not good is he says it's not good for man to be alone. Can I get an amen again from the single people? Thank you, Mary. You got the back there. It's not good for man to be alone. And I love this fact that God tells us in the scriptures. You go read it at home. You'll find it says that God looked and he, and he gave Adam this big mission. And Adam is naming the animals from Aardvark to Zebra. He's naming all the animals. And he says amongst them, there was no suitable helper for him. No one who was right for Adam. So what God did was he said, I'm going to look and I'm going to create a suitable helper. Eve, female for Adam. And that, that word suitable helper, stick with us. We'll, we'll, we'll open this up in weeks to come. But suitable helper is not just somebody to do his laundry. It's, it's a much bigger, higher word than that. Helper, he, God is saying helper, why? Because not just something at a base level, helper saying this task is too big for Adam. This is when the ladies are going, amen, amen. Why? Because this task is too big from the mandate I'm giving Adam to rule and have dominion over this planet, that to, to rule in my image and carry my name, carry my, my, the image of God to humanity and to creation. He says, this is too big for just one person. I need to come alongside and bring uh, Eve alongside Adam for this task. And actually, it's such a fundamental thing to begin with because God is actually in himself community. So he said, it's not good for man to be alone. So he needs to place man in community. So he brings Eve into his orbit. And this is when the scripture gets really, really good and exciting. It tells us that actually God causes Adam to enter his deep sleep, and he pulls a rib out of his side, and he fashions Eve. And then this amazing thing when Adam comes awake from this, this first holy nap. Let's just read it. Naps are good. Just write that one down. It's good. He comes awake from this nap, and the scripture tells us as he catches the first glimpse of not, of not an antelope or a rhino or an animal in front of him, but he catches the first glimpse of a female. And she is naked and glorious. Scripture, I'm just telling you. And the first thing out of Adam's mouth is poetry. You know that someone's looking good if a man starts waxing lyrical in poetic fashion when he sees a naked woman. The first time. This happens in page two of my Bible. Welcome to church. Happens in your Bible as well, believe it or not. Even the good old King James. This is what it says. And actually the scripture tells us, In the NLT, it says, when Adam saw Eve for the first time, he said, at last, at last, that's the words. And actually, if you look at the the ancient Aramaic of that understanding, at last, believe it or not, if you're under 30 and put your fingers in your ears, that has an orgasmic ring to it. Yep, welcome to church tonight. 
page two of the Bible, he's going, at last, a deep, guttural cry of, ah, fulfillment, as Adam sees the one who was made for him. He says, at last, and he breaks out in poetry. And the Bible tells us that actually, then this, this incredible thing happens. He says, the two became one flesh. The word, the Hebrew word is echad, which means the two shall become one. And it's not just talking at a base level, physical sex happened. Sex happened, but what happened was they were fused together at the deepest level. John Marcoma says it this way, in a subatomic primal level, emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, they became one. The two became one. Now, this is amazing because actually from page two of my Bible, I find two naked human beings who are unashamed. And the incredible thing is this, God created, created it that way. Let me tell you, God created sexuality. God created romance way before Hollywood got his hands on it. From page one, it's not morals and lists, it's romance and sexuality. I want to tell you this incredible thing. Here's a great thing if you want to write it down. Sex came before sin. Sex was created and it was good. It was extravagant. It was brilliant. It was breathtaking. It was mind-blowing. It was good. So what do we find? We find as we open scripture, we see two naked people in the garden singing poetry, having soul-satisfying sex with no shame, no fear, no insecurity, no morning after pill, no hangover, no walk of shame the next morning. We find this incredible scene happening in the garden. But then you flip a couple thousand years across to my life. Gabe Phillips is a scrawny 14-year-old. And my first exposure to anything sexual was in the back of a, uh, of a classroom, in a dusty schoolboy classroom in Harare, as two other Greek boys handed me a Playboy that had pages torn out, that was dirty, that was old. And then we giggled with awkwardness and shame and embarrassment. And it was weird. And I go, there's something has gone wrong from a garden of beauty and extravagance and wonder to the back of a classroom paging through a dirty old magazine. What the hell has gone wrong? And how the heaven do we put it right? And let me just tell you this evening, the sad thing is actually is stats tell us that actually now from these days, 10-year-olds, their first encounter of pornography or first encounter of sexuality is not going, going to be a dusty old scope magazine that they found under the bed, but it's actually going to be hardcore pornographic images from as young as 10. That's the average. So actually, what we're realizing now as we look at sociology, that actually from a young age, the, your first impression of something, actually porn, pornography and, and the like has such a, a strong wiring in it that actually our brains start to be rewired down a different pathway. And what is actually not normal becomes normal and acceptable. And what is not shameful should be, and it should be uh, naked, unashamed, becomes shameful, broken, and hidden. And actually from the age of as young as 10 and sometimes even younger, humanity has been on this rewiring of what is actually right and good. And we're walking away from the true picture. So actually, what are we trying to do this series? Romans 12 says this, be transformed by the renewing or the rewiring of your minds. Why? So that you may know what is good, pleasing, and perfect, the will of God. God has good, pleasing, and perfect for your sexuality, sir, ma'am. But we have to begin rewiring our brains and thinking about this correctly. So it's wonderful to be together this evening. For time's sake, I want to tell us there are three big pervasive views of sex, and I want to take us through them very quickly. Number one, often we see this, it'll be on the screen behind me, that we say that sex, we see sex as gross. You often find this in 
religious hallways in Christendom, a lot of the time where Christians fear it. They never talk about it. And uh, people say this sort of stuff. Sex is dirty. Sorry, I just can't even say it. It's nerve-wracking. So so let me try it again. Sex is dirty. Sex is disgusting. Sex is bad. So save it for your husband. Thank you very much for that gift. (laughs) But actually, it's something that when spoken of in church, it comes with a guilt trip and a list of don'ts. If you've ever been in church, often there's Mark says, how low is too low? That's the extent of the, the preaching of sex is that actually it's bad. Don't do it. Here's a condom. And, and that's the extent of it. And actually, though, this is nothing new. It's not a new fear of this. It actually goes all the way back to the fourth century. A man named Jerome, one of the church early church fathers, a theologian, a priest who translated most of the Bible into Latin. And as the Bible, as we know today, was, was attributed to this man, a lot of it. And this man himself was fighting a raging battle of lust. So because of this internal struggle and this, 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 the, the, the opposing nature inside of him of the, saying, actually, I don't know what to do with this lust, but I know what's right, but this pull inside there, he started to set standards for other people. He wrote books about and actually almost vilifying marriage. He actually said, to be single and celibate is the best. Don't even get married. Don't even, because, and he said, and if you want to get married, he even wrote down, he says, husbands shouldn't have too passionate sex with their wives. Just keep it, a, keep it PG-13, husbands. That's what Jerome, our early church forefather said. And the man named Augustine, who is a, a huge voice in Christendom, he said that Mary and Joseph were the ideal and that abstinence was the best expression of love between husband and wife. Mary and Joseph, the couple who had the immaculate conception. That's the ideal. Jesus should do it every time. Let me tell you, middle-aged preachers, they said this. They had this phrase. They said, when it comes to abstinence, we should abstain from sex on Thursdays because it was for Christ's arrest. We should abstain from sex on Fridays for Christ's death. Saturday for the Virgin Mary. Sunday for his resurrection. Monday for the faithful departed. And that's what gave rise to the phrase, thank God it's Tuesday. Now I'll say it gives Wednesday's hump day new meaning. But anyway, that's just an aside. You know what? But religion has often pervaded this thing and said, sex is gross. Sex is not, we don't want to talk about it. Please, that's not for us to chat about here. That's, that's, that's for the smut. That's for the sidelines. But actually, in my Bible, it's page one and two. And actually, what religion has sold us is this equation behind me. This cool Fritz, it says this, that religion tells us moral standards and willpower, and possibly a lot of cold showers, will lead to holiness. And that's the base level of what we've been sold in churches and, and religion is sold. This is how you'll overcome. But actually, I believe the, the real thing there is this is what's happened. If you go to the next one, moral standards plus willpower has resulted in failure, if we're honest. Sexual sin is as rampant, the stats say, in the church as it is out of it. So it's results in failure and a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. And a lot of people saying, we can't talk about that. Because I want to say this, that actually rules without revelation will always lead to rebellion. Just look at a little child. If you tell a child, don't touch that, don't touch that, don't touch it, what will they do when you turn your back? Touch it. Because rules without revelation, not understanding the why, will always lead the human heart to rebel. So firstly, the view is sex is gross. Secondly, in our culture, we see sex as God, a culture who's obsessed with it who actually worship at its altar. And there's four things that we see the flow of sexuality in our culture. Number one, the world says sex is everything. It's idolized. It's in our movies. It's in our series, billboards, magazines. It's emblazoned across the sky each week behind an airplane here in Cape Town. Sex is everywhere you look. 
We even buy the magazines, the sexiest people in the world. And we buy this magazine. Who's number one this year? And that's a, well, not me. That's just maybe somebody in the front row. But anyway. But we advertise everything with sex. From burgers to ice creams to cars to holidays. And yes, I found this one. Even cat food has been advertised with a sexy woman. I don't understand the link, but I'm going with it. The number one Google search is, is a, any derivative of sex, and it's 200 more times than God. So let me tell you, actually, the closest thing people have towards a spiritual experience is sex, because it's become a God to people. This is not a new thing again. This was all the way in the Old Testament. Uh, the Corinthian church were, were worshiping God, but going to go worship on the side, the goddess Aphrodite, the god of love, and to engage with her in this religious experience, experience there was temple prostitutes. That if you go sleep with them, you'll have greater access to the divine. And this is nothing new for us as a people. Paul said it to the Philippians. He says, your God is your belly. You worship your stomach, the things you eat. I just think over the centuries, the God of this age has just gone a little bit lower. But we find, we know that sex is not God. And it falls way short of the creator. But the problem is when we stop worshiping God, lesser powers will take its place. So we find that sex doesn't fully satisfy. So on its own, so it leads to the next thought that sex is nothing. This is what the world says, sex is nothing. It's just, it's just, you know, it's just, it's what we do, you know. So it leads to words that we're using in our vocabulary. People say things like we just, euphemisms for sex, let's shag, screw, hump, nookie, do the monkey, whatever you want to put in there. Because sex is nothing, nothing big about it. We end up saying as a bloodhound gang say, saying, ain't nothing but, you know it. You and me, I was like, I forgot it. 2010 was a long time ago. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. People say that. It's just natural. You're thirsty, you drink. You're hungry, eat. You're, you're, you're horny, have sex. It's natural. It's not overloaded with any special meaning, meaning, and we see in the movies, we trivialize it. They walk into the bar, they smile, they flirt, they touch, they get in the cab, they go home. They have wild sex, and then the next morning they wake up and say, we probably should have a conversation. And it's normal. And we think that's normal because it's nothing. It's just flesh on flesh. Boys will be boys. 99% of the world does it. But that attitude leads to the fact, the third thing, that sex becomes un unrestrained. Sex is unrestrained, and this is nothing new. A futurist in, 19, in 1783, a man who, who dealt with things to come in the society, John Mills, he said, the current rate of civilization in the coming decades, when humans begin, when human beings will greatly restrain their sexual appetite, it'll be governed by conscience and reason. He, he looked ahead and he said, actually, civilization is moving forward. So in the next few decades, in the next few years, society will reign in their sexual desires and will be led by conscience and reason. I wish John Mills could see, or maybe I don't, but could see what would has happened in humanity since the 1700s. Perversity has gone to the extreme length. Reason and conscience and the Western intellect has done nothing to curb this. Sexuality has become unrestrained. People say things like this, it's my right to satisfy my needs, as long as no one's getting hurt. But I want to tell you that sex is like a river. It needs banks. A river, powerful, brings life, vitality, wholeness to a village. But that same river, when it bursts its banks, will destroy the village. Will destroy its agriculture. Because it's, uh, like, like a river, sex is powerful. The Bible tells us in Proverbs this way. It says, without revelation, 
Without revelation of God, the people will cast off all restraint. So you see, the thing is this, that actually we see the greatest pain around us is that riverbanks have been burst. Because sexuality has not been flowing in the channel it's been made for. It's been without restraint and pain has broken everywhere. So it's led to this. Sex is everything. Sex is nothing. Sex becomes unrestrained. And finally, sex becomes depersonalized. Tell me if you recognize this society where women become sex objects. They separate the sex act from meaningful, deep, intimate relationship. And what happens is adult shops on every corner. Magazines promote sex techniques because they rip it away from any intimate relational dynamic. And casual sex is not just okay, but it's the norm. Why? Because sex gets depersonalized. Sex, which is meant to bond two people together in the deepest possible way, just gets relegated to just body on body. When actually the design in page 1 and 2 of the Bible is that sex designed by God, was the ultimate intimacy of body and body, spirit on spirit, soul on soul, coming alive to one another. I remember this years ago, and, and of a youth pastor standing in front of a, a young kids and just stuck with me. And he was explaining to us the, the brokenness of humanity. He took two pieces of paper and says, actually, we were designed when we have sex, we, 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 it's more than just flesh on flesh. There's so much more going on here that actually when you stick it together, the two pieces of paper get stuck together, one upon each other. The two become one. And it's this powerful illustration. And he said, but what society does when we just are sleeping together and then we break up and we think it's just natural, the problem is there's bigger things at play. So when that happens, you rip the paper apart and actually one piece of paper gets quite torn and broken, and so it has pieces of that paper left on the other paper. And then there's these two things that were supposed to be fused together at a subatomical level, and in union with God and delight at the soul-satisfying level, gets pulled apart, and there's traces of each other left on each other. So when the next person, just, it's just what we do, goes to the next person, they put that same piece of paper, which is carrying traces of the other person, on another piece of paper that's been broken and torn by someone else, it's not sticking so well anymore. Why is sex getting not really as exciting more? Why do we need to push the boundaries even more? Because actually it's not working like it once did. And more and more, that paper gets ripped and torn. It actually starts to have a negative effect. The banks have been burst and chaos ensues. You see, this is what happens. If we look at the equation behind me here, the world tells us that when sex is God, desire plus consent equals freedom. That's the liberal message. You've got desires, they're natural they're okay with it. Freedom. Do what you want. But if we look honestly, we find that this equation has been desire plus consent is equal disillusionment. Bill Johnson has this quote. He says, when you get rid of the creator, you get rid of design. When you get rid of design, you get rid of purpose. When you get rid of purpose, you get rid of accountability. When you get rid of accountability, you get rid of the need to answer for your choices. When you get rid of having to give an account for your life, you remove the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So when you get rid of fear of God and no wisdom, all you're left with is total confusion. So we find sex is gross or sex is God. What's our third option? I believe tonight I want to give you the third most powerful option that sex is gift. It's a gift from God. And it's a gift from the greatest giver. He gives us the beauty and power of sexuality. And he gives it to us for our satisfaction and for His glory. There's no losers in this account. This is not something done apart from God. This is done something with God. And, and three things I want to, that we need to have a view of God about. The number one will come behind me again now. Is that God is a God of pleasure. 
let me explode this myth before you. God is not a cosmic killjoy. My cousin once sat me down and said, Gabe, how come everything that seems fun seems to be outlawed by God? And I said, no, no, you're missing the point here. That actually from page one of the story, God says this. He's blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. Page one of the Bible, God is basically saying in the Gabe Phillips paraphrased version, have sex and lots of it. Be fruitful and multiply. Apart from the one immaculate conception, the only way to be fruitful and multiply is sex. From day, day one, God is not forbidding. He is saying, there is pleasure for you. He's not a prude. God doesn't leave the room. He says, you know, when he created Adam and Eve saying, I'm just going to, you guys, I'll give you 10 minutes. I'll be back. And then walk in. What the heck are you guys doing? I didn't know those things were designed for that. No, no, no. He designed the body. He knows it. He knows the world. And the incredible thing is that when it says they were naked and unashamed, they were naked and unashamed under the smile of God. This is massive for us because he's the inventor of pleasure. He says this, in my presence there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And sex is a physical reminder of this greatest joy. Joy in him completely. Sex is just a glimpse pointing to him that he is a God of pleasure. Freud diagnosed the great pain within as the longing for union with a parent. Jung diagnosed the longing for union with the opposite sex. The Christian sees a deeper longing for union with the God who created us. God is a God of pleasure. Secondly, I want to tell you, God is a God of purpose. You see, he gave us this, this thing called sex points to him. It points to God. The scripture says there, it says, Adam, it says, Adam knew Eve, talking about sexual intimacy at the deepest level. Said, the, the, the Hebrew word is, Adam yadad Eve. He knew her. And that word yada is the same word that's used when God speaks about him relating to humanity. God yadded humanity at a deep, soul-satisfying level. This thing of sexuality points to God, because actually, and this thing is mind-blowing, because I remember when I got married, and Fee and I said, we probably, for our sex life, we should probably pray and invite Jesus into our sex life. It was weird. Just as that might have freaked you out right now, it was a weird conversation. But we had to understand that actually, if he designed this for our joy and for his glory, he needs to have a say in it. But for too many of us, we're like, that's not for him. Jesus, please, can we blindfold Jesus? This is an incredible thing is Jesus knows the, the depth of our hearts. The ultimate design of our hearts is to know and be fully known, to be truly unveiled and masked, and other, unmasked. In other words, to be naked and unashamed is the desire of every human heart. Not just in a sexual way, but in a spiritual way that actually, and this incredible thing is that most of us are terrified of rejection. Mark speaks about what's your approach to God. Most of us come nervously. Most of us come cap in hand. Most of us come going, have, have, is my account up to date with God? And we approach him in that level, but God is wanting to tell us that actually that he is a God that wants to point to us and point to himself and everything, even through our sexuality. G.K. Chesterton, the great uh, theologian and author, wrote this. He said, when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he is actually looking for God. Because in our ache and our search for sexual fulfillment, it's actually a, a longing for deeper fulfillment in the Creator. Let me tell you, it doesn't just point to God, it reflects God. Ephesians 5 tells us, 21 to 33 says, Husbands, uh, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, die. Lay your lives down for your wife. Why? 
this marital union of, of delight, even the sexual intimacy. He says, this thing of marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. It needs to, this image of, of God, of being, of a God who's intimate with his people, a God who lays life down, a God who doesn't place demands, but actually says, I'm here to serve, is the sort of attitude that we are supposed to put into our sex lives. Why? Because it reflects him. It reflects Jesus. And actually, it's not just uh, pointing to God. It's not just reflecting God. It's actually the mission of God. You know, the mission of God, basically, again, I say it again, page one, God says, have babies. God's plan for mankind is have sex and make babies. Let's break it down to reality. This is massive. Fill the earth with, with, with people who carry my image. So we find that God is a God of pleasure. He's a God of purpose. But finally, this evening, we find out that he's a God of parameters as well. You see, good passion, but with wrong parameters, leads to pain. Building a fire is not wrong, but without anything to contain it, it leads to chaos. You you know a fire, the same thing that warms your home, the same thing that brings warmth and you cuddle around that fire at home, is the same thing that we see on news reports that's burning half of California down. It's the same thing. But the thing is this, when you, when you build a fire and you put it in the fireplace, it's amazing and it's wonderful and it's warm and it's beautiful. You want to draw near to it. But if you get that same fire and you start building a fire on your couch, get ready to phone the fire department. Chaos and brokenness is about to ensue. What is different? Not the fire, but the place has been put. You see, this is an incredible thing. The only relationship that contain, can, can contain this power of passion is covenant. God has given us this sexual, uh, this sexual thing, this act of sexual intimacy at the deepest, deepest level to be fully, un- uh, fully known and fully unmasked and to be naked and ashamed. He's given us this gift, but he knows that this powerful gift can only be contained in the area of marriage. Don't put it, when, don't put it out. Find the right place for the passion because if you don't find the right place for this passion, you will get burnt. You see, actually, the Latin for infatuation, the word uh, just, to, just to go on a whim, just to, I think I'll go after that and give yourself over to different things. The word infatuation actually means false fire. It looks like fire, but it's not the re- real deal. It won't lead to intimacy. And you see, the thing given to develop intimacy in our lives, sex, can end up destroying our capacity for intimacy when the passions are misplaced. The very thing that's going to be the catalyst to provide the deepest relationship with a spouse in your life, if it's placed in the wrong place, will lead to the thing that will drive the biggest wedge between that intimacy. So I say this evening, maybe, sir, ma'am, you're building the wrong fires. What does that mean? Sending the wrong texts to the wrong people looking at the wrong sites, pushing sexual boundary limits that you know you shouldn't be pushing. I tell you today, God is a God of parameters. He's got pleasure and purpose for you in your sex life. But we believe there's only one place, one location for sex to be brilliant, godly, and leading to life, and that's in the covenant of marriage. Now, we're going to open all this up, and we're going to open up the different ramifications on our singleness, on, our, on, on different relationships, and different moments in our life, different temptations. We're going to open that in other conversations. But I want to say this evening, maybe you're here, and as we talk around this understanding of different views of sex, and, and actually we're saying we have to reframe that God has given us sex as a gift for our pleasure and for His glory, but in the right place and right space, 
maybe you're here tonight and you've messed up. Maybe you're singing and you're going, oh, I really wish I hadn't come tonight. <laughs> I'm feeling terrible. Or maybe you're single and you're fighting to keep the passions in the right place, but you're going, I'm really losing this battle. Or maybe you're married, and, but you're feeling the pull to other illicit lovers. Maybe you've been like that piece of paper and you're feeling torn and broken. And you're like, hey, this is good. Thank you for the preach, but it's a little bit too late for me. I've been broken. I've been hurt. That paper's been torn. And there's pain all around me. I want to take you to one last scripture in John chapter 8. It's a man named Jesus Christ. And he arrives on the scene, and uh, as he's going about the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the religious elite, they come dragging a woman caught in the act of adultery. These Pharisees are people who are the people who purvey the, the, the idea that sex is gross. Sex is, sex is something for, that's dirty, disgusting. It's not, that is not, not for us to talk about. No, that's not a spiritual matter. Keep that out of the, that, the dialogue. And yet these are the same people who have caught a woman in the act of sexual adultery. Quick question, how do you catch somebody in the act of adultery? You yourself have to be a little bit of a peeping Tom. <laughs> so the same guys who say sex is gross are actually the people who sex is God. They've, they've risen that thing above other things. They've risen that sin above other sins. And they've risen that one as a thing. And they've tried to use that to, to, to cut down the divinity of Jesus. And they bring this woman caught in the act of adultery. And they drag her before Jesus and throw her there. I can imagine she's clinging to her robes. She's trying, she's trying to cover her nakedness and her shame and her embarrassment. And she's being torn and broken. And she's thrown at the feet of Jesus. And they say to him, Jesus, the Lord Moses, we should stone her. What do you say? And Jesus, who's not panicked, not insecure, who's not nervously rubbing his hands going, oh, sexuality, I don't know what to do with this one. I don't know what to do with this mess. I don't know what to do with this pain. Jesus is not even baited into an argument. He's not baited into trying to get on the, her, to her defense. What he does is he does something profound, something that we cannot miss. Jesus that starts to do something. He bends down low and he starts to write in the dust. Now, why that's huge is actually the book of John is the New Testament mirror image of the book of Genesis. John chapter 1 starts in the beginning. Genesis starts in the beginning. John is reclaiming the story of creation and bringing it, saying actually the fulfillment of creation is Christ himself. The story of Genesis begins our sexuality and our spirituality journey. And I want to say your sexuality and your spirituality are more connected than you think is actually God bending down and fashioning mankind into his image out of the dust. In John chapter 8, we find our sexuality that's been destroyed, and a woman who's broken and embarrassed and doesn't know where to turn. And Jesus starts to fashion something out of the dust. And as he's writing there, he gets up and says, who's got the first, who's, who's with our sin? Throw the first stone. And then he goes back to the dust and he starts writing at, at her feet, doing something. Scholars don't tell us exactly what he wrote. But then what happened next is one by one, the accusers started to leave. And this woman, she's been caught in the act of adultery. Jesus looks up and says, woman, where's your accusers? And she says, none of them are left. She says, so none, none of them condemn you? Jesus says, then neither do I. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus gives no condemnation. He fashions a woman that has been broken and destroyed and has, has given the, this passion, this, this thing that was designed for fulfillment is given to the wrong place, the wrong emphasis, the thing that has ripped and brought pain to her life. Jesus in a moment redeems what has gone wrong. And he not only just is redeeming that, he gives her a future. He says, go 
and sin no more. He doesn't just redeem her to the start and say, now try again your own strength. He says, actually, I'm going to give you a future that you never dreamt of. I'm going to, if you've give, sold, sold yourself short, you've sold your sexuality for something that was far cheaper than you wish. You wish you could turn the clock back. I tell you, Jesus tonight can start redeeming what has gone wrong. Because on a cross hung a man who redefined who I am. Let me tell you, sir, ma'am, when you bring your sexuality, sexuality is powerful. It can lead you to, to either highest of joys or the greatest of defeats and pain. I want to tell you, when you bring your sexuality and your desires and you place them at the feet of Jesus, whether desires that are for, of the future or desires of, well, I've wasted the old, can I tell you, Jesus can redeem and redefine any of your thing of your sexuality to wholeness, perfection, and beauty. So this evening, I want to ask you this one thing as we land. I'm going to pray. But my biggest appeal is this tonight. Every single one of us, maybe we're here, there's a rewiring of our thinking tonight. Maybe labored some of these points just to start to rewire that sex isn't gross. It's not for conversation for other people. It's actually part of God's design for us. Sex isn't God. I actually got to turn away from worshiping His altar. I've got to worship the Creator, not the created thing. But actually, it's a gift for me. I want to tell you, no matter where you are tonight, can you give Christ your brokenness? Can you give Christ your dust, your dirt, and allow him to make something beautiful again. I believe Jesus is in the business of rewiring our brains and redefining our futures if we allow his hands to invade the broken spaces of our lives. Can we pray?